This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week on the show, we'll be learning how to build an early embryo and finding out how mice react to danger. Plus, what ancient rhino remains are teaching us about hominin history. This is The Nature Podcast for the 3rd of May 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. In mammals, when a sperm cell fertilizes an egg, they merge, forming a structure called a zygote. The zygote then divides into two cells, then four, eight, sixteen, and thirty-two, at which point it's known as a blastocyst. Blastocysts are of great interest to developmental biologists, but they are difficult to study, not least because harvesting the relatively rare embryos at the right stage of development is tricky, even in mice. Enter Nicolas Rivron. He and his team decided not to harvest blastocysts for study, but to make them instead. Reporter Noah Baker called up Nicolas, who started with an overview of the blastocyst itself. And just a heads up, listeners, there's some background noise in this interview. Nicolas was in a somewhat busy hotel lobby in Nepal when Noah spoke to him. The blastocyst is, the, is a very early mammalian embryo, and this is a, a structure that has a, an outer thin layer that is called a trophectoderm, and that is going to form the whole placenta. And inside, there is a, a cavity, and a fluid-filled cavity, and within this cavity, there is about 10 cells that are 
going to form the whole embryo. And at this stage, most mammals, or if not all mammals, look relatively similar. That's correct. It's, it's, it's quite surprising. However, when you look more in details at the molecular level, there, there are quite some differences. And you were interested in studying the blastocysts, but you decided you were going to take a very different route. Yeah, we took a little step aside because I'm actually not a biologist. I, my background is in uh, polymer physics and then tissue engineering and uh, we always have the idea that we can build stuff. You know, like. So what we did is to reconstruct the uh, blastocyst from the bottom up using uh, stem cells. Now that seems like really impressive sort of levels of engineering, but it's actually quite simple in terms of the cells that you use. You started off with two types of cell. Stem cells have a tremendous capacity to uh, self-organize into all kinds of mini-organs, you know, and uh, we call those mini-organs organoids. However, it was never really achieved to do this for uh, embryos, and so what we did is we mixed two types of stem cells. The first one is the famous embryonic stem cells, and the second one are called trophoblast stem cells. And these are the cells that are on the outer of the blastocyst and that are going to form the whole placenta. And by finding the right conditions, we could just pull those cells together and they spontaneously organized into what we call a blastoid. You mentioned that you had to get the conditions just right to make these two stem cell lines sort of self-organize into the blastoid. What kind of conditions are we talking about? Yeah, this is this is the key question, and this is what we've been working on for a couple of years. It was hard, you know. <laughs> but there are two elements that were key at the end. The first one is to be able to pull very small number of stem cells together. Once you have pulled those uh, right number of stem cells, you must find the exact cocktail of proteins and small molecules that is going to trigger the reaction. And in order to do this, we uh, looked into all the molecules that are expressed in the blastocyst. We look back into everything that was discovered previously, and we made a list of you know, potential candidates. But then after, you have to like find the exact cocktail. The blastoid that you created, what does it look like if you were to look at it under a microscope? How similar is it to the blastocyst? And where does that similarity end if you look at it on a molecular level? It is actually remarkably similar to a blastocyst when you look at it under a microscope. We played the game of uh, like trying to differentiate a blastoid and a blastocyst. And it is not an easy game. you know. Like. <laughs> Uh, however, it is clear that the deeper you look, the more you see small differences. What you've created here is not a blastocyst. It resembles a blastocyst. It's a blastoid, is what you're calling it. And this isn't going to be able to grow into a fully-fledged fetus. So at this point, we don't know. Because we formed this blastoid, we were able to transfer it back into the uterus of a mouse. And this is the most stringent assay that can be done in order to test the potential of those blastoids. And at the moment, they implant very nicely into the uterus of mice, and they proliferate, multiply, differentiate from all kinds of cell types that are very relevant. However, it's not, it's not properly organized. So we know that it has 
probably the potential of doing it, but we are still missing some elements here. So. What really interests me here is that you're constructing the progenitor of an entire organism using cell lines which have been independently grown and put together again. This seems like it has some pretty fundamental ethical questions here. One of the questions is actually uh, whether those blastoids should be considered as embryos or not. And we are discussing this with uh, philosophers at the moment, philosophers and ethicists. And it is not clear whether this type of structure should be falling under the law of an embryo or if it should just be considered as kind of nice tool in order to uh, answer scientific question in the lab. That was Nicolas Rivron, who splits his affiliation across two institutions in the Netherlands, the Merlin Institute for Technology-Inspired Regenerative Medicine and the Hubrecht Institute for Developmental Biology and Stem Cell Research. To read his paper, head over to nature.com forward slash nature. So this week in Nature, a discovery from the island of Luzon in the Philippines, sheds new light on when ancient hominins first got to the country. Our story begins a long time ago, in an area now known as the Cagayan Valley as first author Thomas Njiko from the National Museum of Natural History in France explains. You have to imagine that once there used to be a river flowing in the area. Now it's quite arid, it's quite dry area, it's, it's full of grass. And uh, if you have a river, then you can expect fauna to come to drink there. And also you will find pebbles that are suitable for making stone tools. Uh, once upon a time, a rhino died there. We don't know how, but we know it died, and there it was butchered. Now, ancient tools and the remains of megafauna had been discovered in this area before, but their exact age was ambiguous, as many were found on the surface of the ground. To get an idea of how old the hominin population in the area might have been, Thomas and his colleagues needed to find evidence buried within the sediment that could be dated. So the team started to dig. So uh, we, we started the excavation and it was a 2 by 2 square pit and at about 1 meter 20 we found a, a tooth of a, of a rhino, right? And uh, so we decided to, to extend a bit this square that was in clear sedimentary context and then we found the, the very first stone tool in the very same layer. So uh, little by little we decided to, um, to extend the excavation that is now 16 meters square. And uh, that's where we found uh, actually an almost complete skeleton of a rhinoceros. The bones were not connected to, to each other, but all the bones were there in this small area. And uh, around this uh, skeleton were, were stone tools. This rhino was a member of the now extinct species Rhinoceros philippinensis, and its skeleton and the stone tools were secured in a layer of clay sandwiched between two layers of sand. That was the very first time uh, we, could, we could see a direct evidence that hominin species was there by the time rhinos were roaming around in the Philippines. While the rhino's cause of death is unknown, Thomas thinks he knows what happened to it shortly afterwards. We found on the surface of the bones several marks of butchery activity. So cutting marks on the surface of the bones that have the thinnest amount of flesh. So these are the, the ribs, for example, because you have to imagine that this, uh, this rhino could have a quite large amount of, of, uh, of flesh on some of his bones. And also, once the rhino carcass was partly defleshed, some of the bones have been uh, intentionally broken, and most likely uh, with the idea to get access to the, to the marrow. The team were able to get an estimate of how old the rhino skeleton was by dating the sediment sandwich where the bones were found, 
along with one of its teeth. They estimate that the rhino died around 709,000 years ago, and hominins were there to butcher it. Until this discovery, the oldest dated evidence of hominins in the Philippines came from a single foot bone that was found in a cave and has been dated back only around 67,000 years. The Philippines isn't believed to have ever been connected to the mainland by land bridge, so how did these hominins get there? Some water crossing will likely have been involved. How did they cross those cedars is a big question. We suspect that such an old humanity was not capable of sailing, of uh, mastering navigation. But you also have other hypotheses that have been uh, raised in the past for reaching such distant islands. After a typhoon, you can have some part of the coast that is uh, disconnected from mainland and that will float for days and uh, allow some species that are on these floating islands to reach new and uh, pristine uh, lands. That's another hypothesis. And there are more questions too. The team behind the work don't know what species of hominin might have made the stone tools, for example. Although they have found a lot of bones from different animals at the site, including deer, turtle, and an ancient elephant relative called the stegodon, so far they haven't found any hominin bones. The site is still being excavated, and maybe if more remains are uncovered, we'll get some answers about who butchered a rhino beside the river more than 700,000 years ago, and maybe even how they got there. In the meantime, you can read Thomas's paper over at nature.com nature. Coming up in the show, we'll be talking about plans to build virus-proof human cells. That's in the news chat. Right now, though, here's a quick public service announcement. If you listen to the Nature podcast over at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast, you'll be noticing some changes as we're currently updating the site. Of course, website updates always do go perfectly smoothly, but on the off chance that you do experience any technical issues, drop us an email on podcast at nature.com. Right, back to the show now, and Shamini Bandel is here with this week's research highlights. A world distance migration record has been set by a whale shark named Anne. A team of researchers tagged Anne, a seven-metre-long filter feeder, off the coast of Panama in 2011, before tracking her for over 20,000 kilometres as she travelled from the eastern Pacific across to an area near the Philippines. Much of Anne's journey followed the North Equatorial Current, and her tag's last transmission came from the Mariana Trench, 841 days after she set off. The authors hope that Anne's epic journey will shed new light on the complexities of protecting endangered animals with long migration patterns. Journey over to Marine Diversity Records to read more. And in other feats of endurance news, by some measures, children might be fitter than elite athletes, according to a group of researchers in France and Australia. The team compared three groups, university students, endurance athletes and 8- to 12-year-old boys, and found that after a period of strenuous cycling, the children's heart rates returned to normal the fastest. They were also able to eliminate lactate, a byproduct of strenuous exercise, from their blood faster than the adults. This work may help us understand how metabolism changes from childhood to adulthood. If you have the endurance, you can exercise your brain reading the full paper at Frontiers in Physiology. Adam, what's the scariest thing you can think of? Showing up at my PhD viva unprepared and naked. 
Oh, you, you've had that dream as well. Yeah, I think it's ubiquitous among our type. Well, there are lots of scary things in life, listeners. And for a researcher studying fear, figuring out what scares people is quite important. But that's just the start. Andrew Huberman wants to understand the neural pathways involved in the brain's response to scary situations. Here's Sharmini again, who called him up to find out more about his latest piece of research. The focus and topic of this study is to really try and understand how we make decisions about what to do when we are confronted with threats or scary things. How does the brain take what it sees in the outside world and combine that with what we call our arousal states, which is our kind of level of uh, stress in the body in order to make good decisions about what to do. And is is this brain response to threats or fear only something that applies to life and death type situations? So you can imagine this in a variety of contexts. For instance, somebody who has some social anxiety walking into a crowded room full of people and having to socialize. There's things like confronting somebody to tell them something challenging or to ask for something that you're afraid to ask for. Now, that person may or may not be threatening you physically, but it increases your autonomic arousal, meaning heart rate, sweating, pupil size, they all increase. And you studied this kind of fear response in an animal model so you could study what was actually going on in their brains during it. Yeah, we took a simple paradigm of exposing mice to a simulated aerial predator. So mice are very afraid of uh, expanding dark things coming in from above because that evokes the same feelings as a predator coming in to eat it. And so we put the mice into a chamber and exposed them to expanding black uh, dots and the mouse would typically freeze or run. And then we used some molecular tricks and genetic tricks to ask which areas of the brain uh, became most active under those conditions. Uh, And so we were excited to discover this brain area, which uh, essentially includes two output pathways. Um, And one of the output pathways we discovered when we selectively activated it made the animals more fearful The other caused the mice to be really confrontational. They would wander right out in face of the threat. They would even rattle their tail, which for a mouse is a kind of a threatening, almost like chest-beating response of saying, come and get me, let's fight. And now that you've identified these brain pathways and then the key areas involved, you can apply that to humans? That's right. So we have a human lab in which we can expose people to different types of threatening scenarios using virtual reality. And we're monitoring these brain areas in so-called normal people or typical people, as well as in people who have generalized anxiety or phobias to particular types of visual threats, like heights or spiders or snakes uh, or social stressors. So we're doing all that. And we're also looking in patients to try and figure out, you know, how is it that we could manipulate this circuitry to try and ameliorate some of these really debilitating conditions. And aside from highlighting the relevant brain areas and pathways, what have you learned from this mice work that could apply to humans? Yeah, so in addition to telling us where some of this might be occurring in humans, the mouse work gave us some really interesting insights. The, the first one I would say is that this brain area, when it's stimulated, it makes them feel good in a sense. When the animal confronts the stress, that arousal state becomes reinforcing. And this, I think, is an extremely valuable um, piece of data because it tells us that threat confrontation, provided there's an adaptive outcome, is actually a positive experience 
for the nervous system. And is that why fear can be enjoyable? People go to see scary movies because it's fun. Right. The arousal that people experience when they go to see scary movies is um, positively reinforced because they, um, they always survive. So if you're experiencing the fear, but then you're not actually getting hurt, then that gets rewarded in your brain. And then on the other side, um, if you're experiencing fear and so you avoid something and then you don't get hurt, that also gets rewarded, which is, is probably useful for a survival mechanism, um, except when it starts sort of reinforcing fears too much and maybe even turning into phobias. It makes logical sense when you think about it that way, that these brain areas don't know the difference between good and bad. They only know whether or not outcomes were good or bad and they reward good outcomes and they essentially punish bad outcomes by, you know, if you confront somebody and they shoot you, that's a bad outcome. That's not adaptive. And then the, the last thing I think is really interesting in light of phobia and PTSD is that this brain area shows reduced activity as you expose an animal to a threat over and over. So if, when you re- expose an animal to a threat repeatedly, eventually the animal or the human has a kind of relaxed uh, response to it. It habituates, as we say doesn't have as much of an impact. So like imagine seeing a, a scary movie five or six times. It just doesn't have the same impact as it does the first time. And so we wonder whether or not overactivation of this brain area might be what's going on in people that have things like phobias or PTSD, that this area fails to habituate. And so what's the next step of, of moving this research on to actually apply what you found to people? We spent the last year building a human equivalent to the uh, mouse study And the goal of this work is to really understand not just how fear and where fear occurs in the body, but to understand how is it that we can encourage adaptive confrontation to these fears. We definitely don't want to cure fear. Fear is a healthy response. We want to make people more adaptive in the face of fear so that they can lead better, more complete lives. That was Andrew Huberman of the Stanford University School of Medicine talking to Sharmini Bundell. We've got more on this story over at nature.com slash nature with a News & Views article and the original paper. If you'd like to see what the fight, flight and freeze response looked like in these mice, we've got a short film. That's over at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and features editor Richard Van Norden joins us here in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hi, Adam. Now, first up, there's what sounds like a very ambitious plan to synthesize the human genome. This plan's been around a little while, I believe, but uh, what are they actually originally hoping to do? Yeah, this effort launched in 2016 called Genome Project Write, as opposed to Genome Project Read. It's a public-private partnership with around 200 scientists, and originally they wanted to make, from scratch, all of the genes in the human genome. And the intention of that was to essentially improve DNA technology, to sort of showcase what you can do. You could build the whole thing from scratch. And it sounded very, very ambitious. And our new story this week is saying that, yeah, instead of making 3 billion DNA-based pairs, we're going to scale it back. And instead, they're going to do, they want to do something very ambitious, which is to create a human cell uh, and its genome is recoded or edited so that the cell cannot be infected by viruses. Wow, so it really seems like they've lowered their ambition dramatically, just Mm. a virus-proof human cell. Yeah, just that, just that, easy, eh? So that's um, incredibly difficult. And the point of this... 
Well, it does have an application um, because you grow vaccines in human cells and you make antibodies and other biological drugs in human cells. In theory, uh, there could be viral contamination during the production process. So if you could make a cell that couldn't be infected by viruses, you would get rid of that problem. So it has an application, but really the backers of this project say our main goal is still to kind of showcase um, how we can do this cheaply and efficiently. Now, the problem is that they still don't probably have nearly enough money to get this going. And it's beginning to sound like um, a group of scientists want to show off what DNA uh, gene synthesis can do. um, And they're wanting to sort of get the whole field together in something really ambitious, but they really don't have enough money to get going on it yet. How much money are we actually talking about? How much money does it cost to make a virus-proof human cell? It's probably going to cost tens, if not hundreds, of millions of dollars, uh, and it could last a decade or more. So it's a lot of money. Now, George Church, a very famous genome scientist at Harvard Medical School, he is behind this project, and he says, ah, we've already got more than $500 million in related funding. Uh, slightly weasel phrase related funding. He's including some of the money that he's got in grants for his own work on synthetic biology. He's also including a lot of investment money raised by loosely affiliated biotech companies, some of which George Church uh, is a shareholder in. So, um, And some of these companies, like Jinko Bioworks, uh, haven't actually been active in this idea, this GP right project at all. And they said they were rather surprised to see that Church included them on his list of funding. But regardless of the, the money, um, just making a cell line that uh, viruses can't infect is itself extremely difficult. So Church's lab um, before now has taken E. coli bacteria and they uh, tried to recode the genome to make that bacterium resistant to viruses. So if a virus came in, the cell could no longer assemble that virus. So this is recoding, and that's what this project is going to try and do for the human genome. Uh, unfortunately, that will require hundreds of thousands of changes of DNA, and that's why this team says, well, why don't we just synthesize large bits of the genome rather than take an existing cell and edit 100,000 letters one by one. So it makes sense what they hope to do, but as you can see, it's very ambitious. I feel like we keep coming back to that adjective, ambitious. Certainly, I mean, they want it to be ambitious. They seem to have found an ambitious project to work on. Yeah, um, to be fair to them, other synthetic biologists like the priority shift. They say it's a terrific idea, and it is more geared towards applications. It's not just... uh, DNA synthesis for its own sake. So they they like the the way this has shifted. So next up, we've got some news from the European Union, and it's some pretty good news if you're a bee. Now, what's the news regarding bees coming from the EU? Yeah, so last week, the European Union voted to ban three very common pesticides because they harm bees. Uh, And by ban, they mean you can't use them outdoors at all. You can use them in greenhouses, but not outdoors. So um, scientists have just generally welcomed this, which has followed years of debate about the risks that these pesticides called neonicotinoids uh, pose to bees. And by now, it's pretty clear that three of these neonicotinoids uh, can cause some serious harm to bees, uh, can cause them to lose their way when they're foraging for uh, nectar and food. Um, And various studies have shown that even outdoors, in fields, 
um, bees are affected by neonicotinoids, which are used to treat seeds. I think a lot of our listeners will have heard of the potential damage these pesticides can cause bees and heard about it really quite a few years ago. Why has it taken so long to get from that stage to actually having this ban? Well, scientifically, it's been a bit unclear. Back in 2013, the EU imposed a temporary moratorium um, with some exceptions. And part of the difficulty was not just showing this in the lab, but showing this outdoors in the field. And to show that these neonicotinoids cause damage to bees outdoors, you've got to uh, have a lot of fields, coat some seeds, wait for months to see what the effect is on bees the next year. So it did take some time for the science to come in. And some of that science was sponsored by the companies themselves. Um, and to be fair, uh, the companies and farmers are quite angry about this and they're still um, arguing about it. And some scientists said, well, um, this is great news, um, but these neonicotinoids might just be replaced by similar compounds or more harmful ones because farmers have gotten used to using pesticides uh, to protect their fields. And it took a long time to show that these chemicals harm bees. Well, what about their replacements or other ones that are coming on the market? So some biologists are saying, you know, okay, we can ban these one by one or three by three, but we need to move to new farming methods that minimise pesticide use and encourage natural enemies of crop pests and support biodiversity. Bees are obviously amongst the cutest insects, but why do they actually matter for, for farming for, for humans? Well, by pollinating uh, wild plants and flowers, they effectively underpin uh, biodiversity because they help maintain the habitats that uh, other species need to flourish uh, and they also underpin um, food production uh, and generally the environment. So they are kind of seen not just iconic but as also keystone species for the environment. Well we managed to make our way through that story without any awful bee puns so we should both be very proud of ourselves. Thank you Richard for joining us and for more on both those news stories head over to nature.com forward slash news. Well, listeners, that's it for this week's show. But before we go, I just wanted to flag up a new film that Nature has made. Well, specifically that Adam has made. Adam, maybe you can tell us a bit more about it. So this is a short documentary that is to tie in with a written feature that's also being published in Nature this week. And it's following on from the 2016 peace treaty between Colombia and several guerrilla groups, which have been fighting in Colombia for decades, actually. And it's looking at how fighters can be reintegrated into society after fighting well, for years. And, uh, and you spent a bit of time out there as well, speaking to the folks involved. Yeah, so the documentary features interviews with ex-combatants as well as with academics who are hoping that their research can have a positive influence on this reintegration process. And this trip was enabled by a grant from the Pulitzer Foundation. Well, listeners, obviously I'm biased, but I do think it's a great video and uh, you can check it out at youtube.com slash nature video channel. And for the accompanying feature, that's over at nature.com slash news. We'll be here again next week with more stories in the world of science. I've been Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Adam Levy. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.